The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9. We're looking at the transfiguration, verses 28 to 36. Now let me ask you this as you're turning there. What does Bruce Wayne, Bruce Banner, Tony Stark, Peter Parker, and Clark Kent all have in common? Children, what do you think? What do they all have in common? Not only are they superheroes, but they all have a secret identity, some not so secret. Bruce Wayne is actually Batman. Bruce Banner is, I should ask the older people this. Who, Tom, who's Bruce Banner? See, we need some help from the children. Who's Bruce Banner? The Hulk, all right. And who's, huh? Scientist, all right. And uh, Tony Stark is actually... All right, and Peter Parker is actually, and Clark Kent is actually Superman. All right, now, part of what makes watching these superhero movies so fun is, to, is watching them, with their, and we know what their true identity is. Yet, Mary Jane and Lois Lane, they don't have it figured out yet. And so as much as their glory is oozing out of their humble life, we are seeing the drama that comes from their two states of humility and glory as their secret identity is being unveiled. Well, Jesus Christ isn't a superhero. He's better. He's real. He too has two states a state of humility and a state of glory and a somewhat secret identity. And it's in a passage like this where Jesus' identity is gloriously revealed to James, John, and Peter and we get to now partake in that glory as we consider this account. So let's give attention. This is the word of God. Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white or flashing like lightning. And behold, two men were walking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, or exodus, is the literal Greek word, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. 
That's the same word that's used at the end of the book of Exodus when the glory comes down in the glory cloud and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one or my beloved son, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Lord, we need to take this in. So we ask that you'd enlarge our hearts, our minds, give us the ability to take this in and not to be sleepy. Help us to see your glory and may we be changed by it forever. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The context is in verse 28. Now, in verse 28, it just begins with telling us about eight days after these sayings. The idea is to connect you. Well, well you've got to ask the question, what sayings? Eight days later, he's connecting a story with a prior story, and he's saying eight days later after these sayings, well, what was the sayings? So a lot of times we just jump right over the context. The two were completely tied together like a knot. That's what we call context. What did Jesus say eight days prior? Well, that's what I preached. We preached on that last week. Jesus asked his disciples two questions. Who do the crowds say that I am? That was the softball warm-up question. Remember, hit this one out of the park. Here comes the softball. It's kind of like Orioles pitching. Here it comes, okay? And the warm-up question, and you recall the crowds ranked Jesus pretty high, right? They gave answers that, you know, some say John the Baptist or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And that, but as you recall last week, we, we noted that those answers were unworthy of Jesus. They were insufficient answers and they were actually snubbing Jesus or insulting because Jesus was so much more than a prophet. And all the prophets were prophesying about Jesus. And when Jesus prophesied, he spoke about himself. Jesus followed this question with the real heart-of-heart questions. You remember that last week. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. The Christ of God, Luke's account, or Matthew's account. The Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah and the Son of God. And this is immediately followed up with, in verse 21, a very puzzling verse at first glance where it says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And if there's one thing the church has done really well, it's living out verse 21. Don't tell anybody. That wasn't his, his point was initially for, for them to do that. And the question is why? You see, we know that Jesus will later tell us that we're to be his witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Why the shh here? Why does Jesus want them to keep this on the DL? Keep it on the down low. Don't tell anybody what I just told you. Hush, hush. 
Why would Jesus say such a thing, children? Why would Jesus tell people not to tell anybody who he is? Have you found that to be puzzling? And the answer is that Jesus wanted to lead the narrative, to lead the story, and to dictate what it means to be the Messiah. And it's not what the Jews wanted for a Messiah and everybody else wanted for, for a Messiah. Think about it like this. If you win the lottery, let's just say you, you won the lottery. You shouldn't be playing it, but let's just say that you won. What's the first thing you should do? Besides tithe, no, just, no. <laughs> What's the first thing that you should do if you win the lottery? Tell nobody. That's the first thing. Tell nobody. And then the second thing is what? Get legal help and financial help before you do anything. And whatever you do, don't turn in that ticket. Why? Because if you just won $50 million and you go public, you're going to have 50,000 requests and 50,000 people trying to steal that money from you. So you don't tell anybody until you've created the proper safeguards legally, financially, you need a good accountant, a good lawyer, some good people around you before you reveal anything and turn that ticket in. That's what's going on here, similar idea. The same was true with Jesus. If they knew that he was the Messiah, they would come with a crown, a scepter, and horns, and all glory, all elevation, all exaltation. It's time for the people to be elevated with him. And we're, I mean, who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? We gotta figure that out. Jesus is going to define the terms of his kingship and he is the one who defines the terms of what it means to be the Messiah. And Jesus is king and his kingdom is ushered in, in verse 22, in a way that nobody would have written. That's why he's saying, shh, don't tell anybody, because you gotta take this in. The son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and the third day be raised. And no wonder Peter was pulling him aside, telling him this should never be. But his followers then must enter the kingdom, how? If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And he loses and forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. We see that Jesus is telling us he's the Messiah. He's the humble king, and the humble king is coming to lay down his life as a lamb going to the slaughter because all We've all gone astray, each of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're sheep, and Jesus became the lamb. It must be this way. What do we call a judge who judges unfairly, unjustly, and he lets guilty people go free? What do we call that? 
We call that a corrupt judge. We call that corruption. And God will never get charged with that. God's not a corrupt judge. He doesn't let a sinful person like you and me come into his presence and escape our sin and escape death and escape hell that each of us deserves. God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that because he's not corrupt. He's a just judge. And he said that the soul that sins shall die and the wages of sin is death, physical, spiritual, eternal. So if God is just, he's not a corrupt judge, then how do guilty sinners like you and me, how do we get to heaven? How do we get into God's presence? Well, I had an interesting breakfast this past Friday with Mike Nola. So Mike, I hope you don't mind me sharing a few of the things you passed on in our conversation with breakfast. Wise man. And uh, he has his doctorate in New Testament studies. He knows a lot more than I do. And we were just talking about this text. And he helped me to see, you know, Luke is actually has some intentionality here. And there are questions that are being raised in Luke's account that, and a lot of times the answers aren't given. It's meant for you to think about. And it's leading up to this confession and then the father's pronouncement. So here are a couple of the questions. In Luke 5, I went back because you told me about the question, so I went back and read the text that you gave me the hooks for. But in Luke 5, a paralytic is brought down through the roof. And the roof, most people think, was actually Peter's house. This is, you know, his mother-in-law's there, and it's his house, and they, they dig a hole through the roof, and they drop the paralytic down. And Jesus looks at the paralytic, and what does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. What? Guy's paralytic, you dropped him through the roof, and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven, instead of saying, instead of healing him. He does that next. And the crowds look at that, and the scribes and the Pharisees in particular say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Question. And then in chapter seven, this sinful woman, and that means she's quite the seedy woman, from a bad part of town, probably not wearing what she should be wearing, she crashes a Pharisee's party and she breaks an alabaster jar of perfume, she lets down her hair and she starts wiping the perfume on Jesus' feet as an anointment. And this went over how well with the, with the Pharisees? How did this go over? I mean, all social decorum was out the window. And Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, same question, who is this who even forgives sins? Then in chapter 8, Jesus is in the boat during this storm, familiar story. And the winds and the waves are breaking over the boat and they come to Jesus and cry out, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and marveled to one another saying to one another, who then is this? that he commands even winds and water and they obey him. So you can see Lucas beginning to get us to wrestle with a question, who is this? And so Jesus then comes along and says to the crowds, who do they say that I am? And then he says to, and Peter, then he asked, well, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter identifies him. You're the Messiah. You're the one who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. In doing this, he's the just judge. He's pacifying the just judge who punishes sin, yours and mine, and Jesus suffers as the king and dies in our place. And so we see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who lays down his life and brings in the kingship in terms that we would have never had brought in if he had declared to everybody from the get-go, hey, go, go spread this to all your friends. Go tweet this out. Go, go, go social, you know, go, go broadcast this. No, keep it quiet because I have a mission and it's to lay down my life for the sheep. And so not only does Peter confess who he is, but then he actually, you know, as, as Mike showed me in this text, is that it's verified that I'm the son of God, not because Peter declared it, because the father from heaven verifies and declares to everybody, this is my son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so in this passage, we are shown the glory of Jesus. We see his unveiled identity. And we realize that this secret identity, this Jesus as a human being, that he's God in the flesh, and yet his deity is veiled. But Jesus here is wanting us to know that all the things that I'm going to do, I must suffer. I, it must happen. He must suffer. He wants his disciples to know it's all voluntary. It's all love. If you saw Bruce Banner getting thrashed about by Loki and Loki was grabbing him by the foot and taking Bruce Banner and throwing him around and says, puny God. And you would know because you know the bigger story. This is crazy. Bruce Banner's the Hulk and Loki is nothing compared to the Hulk. And the only reason Bruce Banner would take that kind of punishment would be something crazy. It would be to accomplish some incredible purpose because we know that the Hulk can crush Loki with no problem. You see, Jesus is showing Peter, James, and John that all the things that are gonna happen to me, I'm, I'm letting them happen. It's all voluntary. It's like somebody powerful is just flexing their muscles for a moment to show his glory, to show this is who I really am. This is how much I love you. And they're going to understand later what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus says in these verses, I tell you truly, verse 27 and 28, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Do you see that in 27? And so this very, um, and, he, and he says in verse 26, that he's gonna come in his glory and the glory of his father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, there's some who are standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, now eight days later, there's our context. 
Eight days later, he's going to show them the kingdom of God, of Jesus coming in the glory of his Father. He's going to show them his glory, and some who are standing here are going to see it and are not going to die. What's he talking about? Is that Peter, James, and John are going to see the kingdom of God, the glory of Jesus coming in his kingdom, and they are getting a picture of both the future and the past. We could call this back to the future because they're seeing Jesus' glory before he became a human being, the glory that he has in eternity past. And we're also seeing the glory of the future of Jesus. We'll come back to that in a second. And so what we see here is that Jesus is transfigured. And it's as bright as lightning, and it's, shi- it's brighter than the sun. And you can tell that the, the writers are stumbling with trying to write of how dazzling, brilliant Jesus' glory was. They don't have words to describe it. Unbleachable clothing, you know, white light, flash like lightning. It's glorious. And so Jesus is, is transformed transformed before them and then Jesus is having a conversation with Moses and Elijah and they're talking about Jesus's exodus and the two men that Jesus is with are also glorious and then Peter's going to say something very foolish and then there's going to be a cloud that's going to come and overshadow them and they're going to be afraid or terrified as other accounts say because they enter into this cloud of the glory of God, and God actually speaks from the cloud that this is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, when you hear this passage, you hear mountain, glory, lightning, cloud, a voice from heaven. What do those ticker things remind you of? That should remind you of a particular story in the Bible. Help me out. A mountain, Glory, lightning, cloud, voice from heaven. Moses from heaven goes up and he's at Mount Sinai and God gives him the Ten Commandments and the people are scared to death. So this is Mount Sinai part two. And the idea here is that Moses reflected the glory of God. And you remember he came down and he's, he, he is glowing himself, but it's, it's, you know, his glory is like the moon. It's a reflected light. But Jesus is the one who produces the glory of God. And the very glory that Moses was seeing in the Old Testament was Jesus. It's the same glory that's now emanating from Jesus. He's the source of it. And so the idea is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And when Moses went up on the mountain with God, he experienced God in the cloud. He gets close to the glory of God. And when he came down from the mountain, he's glowing. And they had to veil his face. Exodus 40 says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't know that the, that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses. And behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses' glory was a reflected glory. It was fading. It wasn't permanent. But we know that Jesus' glory is permanent. It's veiled briefly in this humble state on earth. 
yet here his deity is breaking forth. And so as Kent Hughes says, he says this was a glance back to his pre-human glory and a looking forward to his future glory. And doesn't Jesus say both in John 17? John 17, 5, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've been veiling it, but he's asking God, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. That's what you got right here. And then he also says at the end of the chapter, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us more than anything to see what? His glory, his weightiness, his doxa, his glory. One commentator, David Gooding, put it like this. The effect of the transfiguration was to convince the disciples beyond any shadow of doubt of the real existence of the other world, the eternal kingdom. Our world is not the only one. There's another. And next, we're given to see that the other world is not just future to our world, but concurrent with it, meaning it's, it's happening now. Though also before it and beyond it, They further saw that though this world is normally invisible to ours, Christ had contact with both worlds simultaneously. Here he is interacting with Moses and Elijah. And then we get to Peter's pluralistic inclusivism. His big mistake, he didn't know what he was saying. He tries to set up a pantheon of gods and he tries to put an equality. Let's make three shelters, one for you, Elijah, and one for you, Moses, and one for you, Jesus. And the title of the sermon is How Quickly We Forget because what did he just confess eight days prior? Some say you're one of the prophets, but you're not. You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. You're in a whole different category. Whoopsie, he forgot that already. And now he's wanting to set up three shelters of making them equal and pick your path. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. And we're just told he didn't know what he was saying. It was an open mouth, insert foot, think later. He was just caught up in the moment. But it does tell you something about our glory. You think about this for a minute. Moses and Elijah have not, they haven't received their glorified bodies yet. That doesn't come to the resurrection of the last day. Yet they're glorified here. They're glorious. So glorious that Peter is tempted to make them on equal footing with Jesus. How do you think Ira's looking today? And those who've gone before us, those that are with Jesus, they're glorious. This is our future, Moses and Elijah. We will be glorified. And the Bible says we're going to shine like the stars in the universe. I mean, we're going to shine as brightly. I mean, it's going to be so much glory. It's beyond our imagination. But I want you to see that Jesus is talking a specific conversation. There's a convo going on here. There's a conversation. And the conversation is about an exodus. Moses led people out of bondage and slavery of Egypt, and Jesus' exodus is to bring us out of bondage and slavery from sin. And Jesus' exodus is greater than anything Moses ever did.
You see? And so three application points in closing. In closing. First of all, our exodus right now is experienced in part in this life. We have been delivered from slavery to sin. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin. But none of us has experienced an exodus from the presence of sin. We still wrestle with it. And not only do we wrestle with the presence of sin, but we wrestle with all the fracture of the fall as its ripple effects have affected everything in this world. And the Bible talks so much about hardships and trials and suffering and pain. And what we see is that this is actually the path to the kingdom. You're on the right path. We are still, the idea of exodus is a literal Greek word, means out of wilderness or out of desert. So God's people get delivered out of Egypt, but then they're still in the wilderness. And that's where we are. We are exiles. We're in the wilderness. And we haven't crossed over into that promised land yet, into glory. And the apostle Paul and Barnabas had a message for the churches on their second missionary journey. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus told the disciples here, is that you have to take up your cross, deny yourself. If you want to gain the world and gain everything, you forfeit your soul. The way down is the way up, and the way up is the way down. He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we're not there yet. We're in exile. We're in this wilderness. We haven't entered that promised land yet. I was reading recently in Isaiah 25, and it's a glorious picture of heaven, but it's a little different than Revelation 21, which says in Revelation 21 that God will wipe away every tear from our faces. We're familiar with that. Death shall be no more. Isaiah 25 says he'll swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Now, if you just read that quickly, you wouldn't catch that there's a difference. Revelation 21 says he will wipe away every tear from from their eyes. That's not what Isaiah 25 says. Isaiah 25 says the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Revelation is saying, All tears are every tears, but Isaiah is saying every face, all faces. I wrote that in my Bible because everybody has sorrow. It's universal. You are not alone. You that think you're so depressed and nobody has what I have. Everybody has sorrow in this life. And when Jesus comes, he wipes away all faces, every tear, but everybody has sorrow. Jesus is letting us know this is the path now, but it will soon be over. The glory is to come. The second is Jesus is unique. He's unparalleled. And that calls for us to see the glory of Jesus that no other prophet, nobody else in history of the world has this stamped on him from God the Father speaking from heaven in a glory cloud. Nobody. He's unparalleled, he's unique. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And just as Jonathan understood that about David as the rightful heir to the throne and surrendered, that's what we do, is now we surrender our lives to his. We wrap our lives around him. If to see a passage like this and then just to go on and live your life in your merry way and not to conform your life 
to his is stupidity. To go get drunk and to go smoke pot and to do, what, do whatever that world you want to do because you don't care. Watch whatever movies you want to look at and download the crud that's out there and to think that King Jesus is not offended or that it has nothing to do with him. I just want to do what I want to do. It's cool. Everybody else is doing it. Well, you're going to have to answer to Jesus. And Jesus is worthy of much more glory. And he made you for much more glory than that. So do you make much of him now with your life, kids? You can't put him on an equal with anybody else and make three shelters and say, come on in, be my Facebook friend, Jesus, and never touch base with him. Just I want you to see and I want you to like me and I want you to press like and and tell me how great I am. That's not how Jesus operates. He's the all-glorious one. And Jesus is the one that is come and tabernacled among us. He is the very tabernacle. The Bible says the word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. So to make three tabernacles is just foolishness because Jesus is the tabernacle. He's God in the flesh. And lastly, as glory-starved people, And we run around endlessly and restlessly from one children's sports tournament to watching this great movie to this great book. And we're always looking for something that we think this world is going to, I just got to keep scratching. I got to keep itching and eventually I'm going to get to that scratch. And we need to be reminded that this is what we need is the glory of Jesus. If we could just get that. C.S. Lewis said, if I found in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. What, What does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring, Lewis says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. He says the whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. But there's this sense in the universe where we're treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality as part of the inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in this sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory meant good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will, will be open at last. Apparently then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside will be both glory and and honor beyond all our merits and the healing of that old ache. You see what Lewis was getting at? Lewis said he was happy and his happiest when he longed most. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. He said there have been times when I think I don't desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. 
It's the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing that we desired when we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when no mind, when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. All your life in unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of our consciousness. The day is coming when you awake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it if your trust is in Jesus Christ. And there are people that are, that are atheists. And you know what they say? I don't believe in God, but I sure do miss him. Because in their heart of hearts, they know that they were built for something more than this world can deliver to them. And Jesus shows it off to these three men And we get to take a peek at this to see Jesus' splendid glory of what the future will be, what the past was before this world ever was, and after this world will be, there will be Jesus in his glory. He's coming in the glory of his Father, in his glory, in the glory of his Father, in the glory of his holy angels. Are you ready for that day? What are you living for? Really, what do you want to spend the next... 40 months, 40 years. What do you want to live for? Live for this. Because there's nothing else worthy to live your life for. Let's pray. Lord, you're not done with any of us. And we want to live for you. You have made us, Lord, created us in advance to do these good works prepared in advance that we would walk in them. And I pray for each one of us here that we would not take the talents that you've given to us and bury them or that we would exalt ourselves foolishly living for the dash between our birth date and our death date knowing that you've made us for so much more. Thank you for making us in your image. Thank you for eternity that is real. Thank you for those who've gone before us that loved you. And we pray that we'd finish well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.